Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany Spotlight on State Government. I hope I don't have the, the coronavirus. I haven't shaken this yet. My guest today is Zach Williams, and he's going to talk about this week in state government. Um, so, Zach, I would say that the overriding issue of the week has been the coronavirus, right? Oh, I would say so. Uh, just, you know, everything started off quite literally at the beginning of the week. Uh, on Sunday, the federal government gave the state its authority to test for the virus, Monday morning, the governor announced the first case, first confirmed case in the state. And since then, it's just uh, grown to dozens of cases and really overshadowed everything else that the state government has been up to uh, in the past week. There was uh, legislation passed that gave $40 million in emergency funding, expansion of the governor's authority over all declared emergencies. And, um, you know, the governor has had seven press conferences in the Capitol uh, wow. in the last five days. And, you know, just to give you a sense of how big of a deal that is, last week was the first Capitol press conference he had of the entire year. Wow. Do you think that people should be alarmed that this is going to be like, I want to use the word epidemic. I don't know what other word to use, proportions. I mean, at this point, it's conjecture, right? Well, there certainly are, you know, there's dozens of confirmed cases in the state, hundreds of, um, you know, the state is mobilizing its resources. I think the proper term to maybe use right now is just call it an outbreak. You know, there's a bunch of cases. It certainly is not anywhere near the level that we've seen in China, in Italy, and some other countries. Um, but that said, the state government is taking it pretty seriously, and um, you know, the activity within the Capitol has changed accordingly. I think in terms of being worried about it, you know, that's been a point the governor has made repeatedly through his public uh, appearances throughout the week. Um, you know, that this, you know, 80% of people that get coronavirus um, will likely not even know that they were carrying it, which basically means that, you know, it had no real consequence to their health, you know, Overall, a percent or two, maybe as high as 3% of people are estimated by scientists to, you know, die after being infected. But it mostly hurts people that are elderly or otherwise have some type of underlying health condition. One thing that's kind of interesting is children have actually proven to be the most resilient demographic group to coronavirus, um, you know, and that comes all the way from China particularly. So it's you know, it's certainly a disease that um, deserves attention and, you know, could spread and will spread in the coming weeks. But that said, it's hardly a death sentence, um, you know, when 80% of people who contact the virus are estimated to not show any symptoms at all. Of all the cases in the state right now, uh, you know, we're talking on Friday, 
evening, there's 44 cases confirmed in the state right now. Only five of them are, are people that are hospitalized. So this started, would you say this started in China? Well, nobody knows for sure, but certainly China has been the epicenter um, of the disease. I think they've had, you know, um, thousands of deaths. They've cordoned, you know, entire cities, including Wuhan and in uh, Hunan province or in um, in central China, which, you know, um, you know, appears to be where the disease started since then it spread to several other countries across the world. Now we have it here, not only in New York, but in Washington state where a dozen people have already died. There's about 250 cases confirmed across the country. And, you know, I, I sat in actually um, on a meeting of the Cuomo administration's, you know, top agency officials and everyone from Department of Financial Services, um, Superintendent Linda Lacewell, Pat Foy from the MTA, and about, you know, nearly two dozen other officials. And what I found really interesting in hearing how the governor, you know, interacts with his, um, you know, agency heads is that, you know, he really wants to try to keep this in perspective. He certainly is making moves to get ahead of everything. And, you know, nobody knows how much coronavirus will spread, but, you know, the governor has certainly made efforts to qualify his words in a way that tries to keep people, you know, going about their daily business, taking the prudent um, precautions, but to avoid any sort of widespread panic over a disease that, you know, after all, is it only affecting you know, at, you know, a few dozen people, maybe a few hundred thousand people um, across the state. I think there's about 4,000 people under voluntary quarantine right now, which means that basically they got to stay home uh, for the next two weeks and, you know, to make sure that they don't have the disease and they're not spreading it to other people. What what was the uh, quote that, I believe it was Rahm Emanuel, had made about about a um, crisis, uh, and do you think that I don't remember the exact quote, but do you think that Cuomo is using this crisis as an as a tool to advance himself? Well, the, the quote you're referring to, which has been attributed to Rahm Emanuel, the, the former chief of staff to President Obama and later in now the, the current mayor of Chicago, is that you never let a, a good crisis go to waste. Right. And, you know, that, that can be taken one of two ways. One of them would be simply that, you know, you learn from a crisis and you make, you know, things bigger happen um, beyond just dealing with the crisis at hand. I think most political cynics latch onto it in a different way, which is if there's a crisis, you use it to expand your own power and get things done that otherwise you could not. Now, the governor, you know, he last week, he proposed, um, you know, that that legislators allocate $40 million to help the State Department of Health um, combat coronavirus. But when he actually came up with actual legislative language on, um, I believe it was um, Monday, the funny thing is that there was another provision. It wasn't just about funding. It would also allow the governor to effectively, you know, not only suspend state laws in the event of emergency, whether it's coronavirus, uh, flooding, or a volcano, 
Um, it would also let him, you know, basically write new laws to meet that emergency. Now, there were some, um, you know, certain conditions within that. For instance, um, state lawmakers could pass what's called a continuing or a, uh, a, a, um, a, you know, could pass a resolution that require a majority of both houses to overrule the governor on his emergency actions. And the law itself they passed this week would, um, would expire in April 2021. That said, a lot of lawmakers, you know, were not happy uh, with the legislation for two reasons. One of them was that um, they felt it gave too many emergency powers to a governor. The second was that they were given the bill and then asked to pass it just a few hours later, which is, you know, kind of uh, makes people skittish because that's often the gr- one of the great sources of criticism for the state budget, you know, that nobody knows what's in it until the moment they got to pass it. And there's just not a lot of time to not for not only lawmakers to, you know, understand what the legislative language means, but for the public to respond as well. And this uh, emergency legislation was passed literally in the middle of the night. The state assembly, after some debate, passed it by an overwhelming margin. Um, I think just a dozen lawmakers voted against it in the assembly, only four in the Senate. And the assembly passed it just after midnight on Tuesday morning, and the governor signed it into law, um, you know, uh, that later that morning. So, you know, I think that while only 12 in the Assembly and four in the Senate voted against it, there was a lot more opposition in both houses of the state uh, legislature than those numbers would suggest. So, you know, in speaking with Cuomo, I, I, I spoke to him in his office on Monday. You know, he, he framed um, the necessity of the state's response, you know, in this way, that there was, you know, right now the coronavirus is is more of a, a, a danger insofar as it could inspire, you know, anxiety and panic among, you know, the 20 million people across the state. But what really needed to be done was, you know, all sorts of preventative actions to make sure that if something goes amiss, everything is in place to, that would make it, uh, you know, to handle it. And that could be everything from, you know, making sure that, uh, there's enough testing kits and enough face masks and other medical materials. It can also be, you know, things like, you know, unionized uh, labor for, you know, one government department be used in another. Can, you know, will the unionized workers at the MTA be willing to, you know, do certain things that might expose them to the virus, like cleaning subway cars, for instance? You know, is there a, you know, legal language that would let that would allow the states to not just, you know, advise people to be quarantined in their home, but that could make them do it. You know, these are all questions that had to be asked. I'd say in the meeting that I observed that, you know, I had exclusive access to uh, from the governor's office, you know, really was all about making sure not that there were answers to these questions, but that these questions were brought up to begin with. So that all said, you know, the governor feels he has the ball. He managed to strong arm lawmakers into giving him what he wants in this emergency um, legislation. He, you know, it will ex- expire in April next year, but the governor is leaving the door open to extending it thereafter. And just the fact that it gives him authorization to not just deal with coronavirus, but with, you know, any other type of emergency that might arise in the coming year shows that, you know, the governor's thinking ahead about how this crisis can empower him to deal with future emergencies, and not everyone is on board with that idea. Do you 
do you think that um, the corona, uh, that the state budget is taking a back seat to the coronavirus? Well, as of last week, everybody was just talking, uh, you know, bail reform, bail reform, bail reform. So much is ground to a halt uh, in the state capitol, at least. You know, there were rallies like usual, all sorts of different interest groups trying to get attention for, you know, marijuana, funding for local streets, bail reform, you know, all sorts of things. But, you know, all the governors really been talking about seven press conferences uh, you know, 98% of everything I was talking about was coronavirus. It's just drowned out every other issue. And in some respects, that's kind of to the governor's benefit. You know, anytime that people are talking about, you know, coronavirus is time that they're not talking about bail reform, they're talking about, um, you know, with controversial moves to limit Medicaid spending. It's time that they're not talking about, you know, the pros and cons of legalizing paid gestational surrogacy. All sorts of issues have you know, been drowned down this past week, and there's only three weeks to go until that April 1st budget deadline. Mm-hmm. If, I'm a, if I were a state lawmaker, I'd be wondering, you know, how can coronavirus work for me? You know, some proponents of single-payer health care, for instance, have said, you know, coronavirus and, you know, all these worries about, you know, do people, you know, working people need to pay for, you know, testing or vaccines or hospital treatment or whatever, you know, maybe that's a way to promote single-payer health care. I think, um, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez made that that very argument a day or two ago. Um, you know, with, with the you know the governor himself has said that there could be incredible costs borne by the state to deal with coronavirus. Maybe that's an argument that lawmakers can make to raise taxes on the wealthy. You know, the next couple of weeks will will show not not only how the state deals with coronavirus, but how state lawmakers incorporate this issue into the vision they want to enshrine in the budget they'll have to pass at the end of the month. Now, you you work for city and state. You cover what's going on in Albany. Is the 49 other governors um, as visible as Governor Cuomo is? talking about this issue well you know we live in a silo up there on the third floor of the capitol so i don't necessarily have the best perspective i think you know one governor who has gone a lot of attention because of coronavirus is jay Inslee in washington i think a lot of people might remember him from early in the presidential campaign when he was running for the democratic nomination largely on a on climate change now, you know, he's, he's back in Olympia. He's in charge of his state's response to coronavirus. Um, I don't know too many of the details of, you know, pro or con, whether he's doing a great job. There have been, you know, a dozen deaths, I believe, in his, uh, mostly in his uh, state, if I'm not, if I'm not uh, incorrect. But by and large, it looks like, you know, he, you know, has risen to the challenge and things are more or less under control over there. Um, California has been, you know, it's probably the, the other biggest state along with New York that has, you know, a, an outbreak to deal with. Um, mm-hmm. Gavin Newsom certainly mm-hmm. has in some ways a similar political profile as Governor Cuomo here. Um, but I think it's safe to say that, you know, Governor Cuomo is going to be, you know, uh, you know, has been making the national media rounds all week, CNN, Friday night, uh, 2020 on ABC, you know, is getting a lot of attention. And that's, you know, one of the things that makes him tick, not just talking about coronavirus, but presenting himself not just to the state, but to the nation as the can do, you know, putting the progress and 
progressive governor of New York who rises above politics. This is the image he wants to have, not the, you know, um, <laughs> dare I say, cutthroat, um, you know, master of the New York State Capitol who, you know, is the object of a lot of criticism in his day-to-day job. That's changed with coronavirus. And as I wrote earlier uh, this week in a piece uh, calling him the master of disaster, you know, Cuomo feels pretty comfortable in the driver's seat whenever there's a crisis around. So um, give us an update on the uh, bail reform issue for the week. Well, I think, you know, the big thing is the mathematical battle over the criminal justice reform giving into effect on January 1st. You know, new um, crime data came out from the NYPD this week. The police and Mayor Bill de Blasio claimed that there was an uptick in a bunch of different crime categories. Public defenders and supporters of the reforms have argued otherwise. So I think the big thing is to look, you know, is to not is to to dive into numbers if you can, um, you know they both have their conflicting interpretations, you know and I think the the key difference is police are focusing on who's how many arrests there are, whereas advocates mm-hmm. are talking about how many people are actually charged. So think of it this way: if you got somebody that's arrested for robbery, for instance, and and then the prosecutors aren't, don't charge them for whatever reason, the pro-reform people are going to say, well, that shouldn't count in terms of crime data, whereas the police will say it should count. So if we're comparing to last year's data on uh, robberies and we see we you know, have 20 of them in February and only 10 of them in February of 2019, but 10 of those were robberies that weren't charged, then you could argue the supporters of the reforms are arguing that those shouldn't count, that there were 10 people arrested in February 2020 and and the same amount in 2019, and they were, you know, the same number was charged. So how could you say crime has gone up? The police and, you know, critics of bail reform, they got their own take on that. But there's been several reports coming from both sides in the past week that, you know, have been trying to, you know, really craft the media narrative and the impression the public has on what those numbers mean and how it should relate to changing or not changing these new limits on cash bail. Hmm. So the other big news for the week is former Mayor Bloomberg decided to drop out of the presidential race. So give us your take on that, please. Well, I think it, it just goes to show that even when you have unlimited financial resources as Bloomberg did, you can't buy, you know, elections, at least not in the presidential primary in 2020. Uh, You know, Bloomberg spent $500 million in just a few months running for president. And all it really bought him were a few delegates and a win in the American Samoa uh, primary. You know, this, this past week was Super Tuesday. He had bet the whole shop on it. You know, he had skipped Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. He was supposed to do really well, win a bunch of states, take that moderate mantle away from former Vice President Joe Biden. But the exact opposite happened. Joe Biden, you know, slumped through the first couple contests, won huge in South Carolina. And somehow mm-hmm. that momentum, you know, brought him to victory in states where he didn't even really campaign. You know, he won Massachusetts, Minnesota, 
these states where you spent nothing and, you know, Bloomberg spent millions of dollars on TV, radio, internet advertising. And in the end, he, he basically got diddly squat. And, you know, you can at least say that, that, um, you know, the guy knew when he was beat, (laughs) he didn't need to look that hard at the data. It was, you know, just as clear as day, you know, he was, he spent a bunch of money, he lost and he dropped out of the race. Do you think the debates hurt him? I mean, he wasn't exactly a ball of fire at the debates. I, I think they did. We'll never know to what extent. But, um, you know, he was riding pretty high, got a lot of good favorable press coverage, um, you know, before the debate. He was spending tons of money in all these states that I just mentioned. Um, and then he got on the debate stage. And, you know, Senator Elizabeth Warren, among other people, really tore into him on you know, the, um, the uh, non-disclosure agreements that women that worked at his company had to sign after settling sexual harassment complaints, um, you know, his vast wealth and what that means in the Democratic race in 2020, um, you know, and he just didn't respond well. It's, it's kind of surprising, you know, how even all the money in the world could not buy him, you know, the right sound bites at the right time to, you know, to help him take advantage of that big, you know, opportunity he had on the national stage on television where he could show that he wasn't just a candidate who, you know, was in TV commercials, um, you know, developed by others, but he was a real human (laughs) who could connect with voters and stand up to scrutiny. And he couldn't. Um, He, you know, some of his responses just seemed out of touch, especially with the Democratic electorate in 2020 that just, you know, isn't the same as when he won those big elections in New York city, uh, with a lot of democratic support now, you know, more, uh, you know, more than 10 years ago. So, um, you know, I think it did hurt him. We'll never know, you know, exactly to, you know, how much it did, but, you know, when you skip the first couple contests in the presidential campaign, you need all the help he can get. And he didn't get much help at all from television uh, in those debates. I remember that's kind of reminiscent of Giuliani when Giuliani placed all his eggs in the basket of Florida and he lost pretty pretty big at that point. So to me it was like an analogy. What do you think? Yeah, I think there I, I think that there is something to be said. You know, keep in mind that Michael Bloomberg is one of many and I think just about every New York City mayor except for David Dinkins in the last half century or so has thought that he could run and win the presidency going all the way back to John Lindsay back in the sixties and, Uh you know, Bill de Blasio, um, dare I say, kind of humiliated himself running for president, um, you know, had almost no support at all, you know, became was Uh an object of ridicule by the New York city press corps. Um, And Rudy Giuliani didn't do much better when he ran in 2008. One thing that's interesting is that at least in the case of Giuliani and Bloomberg, neither of them ran for president. Maybe you could say for de Blasio too. Neither of the, them really ran for the president presidency when they were at their peak popular um, support. Imagine a world where, where Rudy Giuliani could have ran for president in 2004. Of course, George W. Bush was running for re-election there, so that world would, would take a little bit of imagination. But, you know, mm-hmm. that's when he was America's mayor. Not in 2008 when, you know, the world had kind of moved on to some extent from, you know, from 9-11's aftermath to the hope and change that would take 
you know, Barack Obama to the presidency. The same thing happened with Michael Bloomberg. You know, ten years ago, when New York City, you know, had recovered from 9/11, um, you know, was prospering under, um, you know, Bloomberg's mayoralty, and a lot of the controversies hadn't quite, um, you know, come up in the public consciousness. You know, Black Lives Matter you know, it didn't come around until 2013, 2014, when de Blasio was mayor. You know, it, it, maybe Bloomberg could have done better. Um, you know, at that time, he was younger. So he didn't have to deal with the age issues. He didn't have as much, you know, criticism in the public record. He still would have faced a lot of headwinds. But I think he would have done better at least back then with $500 million than he sure did in 2020. Now, this morning when you and I were exchanging ideas, um, you had mentioned um, Howie Hawkins. How does Howie Hawkins fit into this? Well, Howie Hawkins, uh, some of your listeners might remember him from his various uh, political campaigns, gubernatorial campaigns. You know, he's the front runner right now for the Green Party uh, nomination for president. The only New Yorker left standing now that uh, now that uh, President Trump has moved to Florida. So. <laughs> You know, in a, in a very uh, curious way, Howie Hawkins is now carrying the mantle for the Empire State. You know, the, the tricky thing will be if Bernie Sanders somehow pulls it out and gets the Democratic nomination, because, you know, a self-described socialist is not the normal opponent the Green Party is railing against in a presidential election. And things could be close, you know, if, if Bernie Sanders, you know, is running neck and neck with, with Trump in states like, you know, um, Florida, um, the Midwest, um, these various other swing states, you know, a, a percent or two of the vote that goes to Howie Hawkins on the Green Party line could hurt the Democrats. You know, we'll see. I would think that if Joe Biden gets the nomination, the Green Party is not going to have any qualms attacking him as a you know, corporate shill and, um, a, mm-hmm. you know, an enemy of uh, progressive change. But if Bernie gets it, I think there might be some soul searching in the Green Party about just how hard they should complain against them. And you got to keep in mind, though, that the Green Party at least has to do fairly well or they could risk their ballot access in states across the country. And for a third party, that's a you know, pretty tough thing to get once you lose it. Well, the last time I spoke to Howie Hawkins, he said that it's going to be very difficult for the Green Party to be on the ballot for president in 2020. Have you heard anything more about that? You know, I, I think it's always going to be hard for the Green Party. You know, they they typically, I think their best showing might have been in uh, 2004 when uh, or 2000 when Ralph Nader was running. I think it was in 2000 when Ralph Nader ran right. it and was accused of being a spoiler for Al Gore. Um, you know, it's it's just hard. You know, all the states have different requirements for getting on their ballot. But, you know, in, in New York, for example, to run for governor, you needed, um, you know, you needed 50,000 votes in the last gubernatorial campaign. The Green Party usually did pretty well, at least better than some other third parties. But, you know, every year, every presidential election is going to be a struggle for, for the Greens, for the Libertarians, for the Peace and Freedom Party, you know, where the, in the states where they're active. And I don't think there's any reason to think 2020 will be any different, um, especially mm-hmm. given how, you know, how people are either for or against Trump. And if they're against Trump, they're, you know, typically looking to the Democrats 
they're not looking as much to just make a political statement by voting for the Green Party and risking, uh, you know, Trump winning re-election. Our time is almost up, Zach, so like always, give yourself a little plug. Well, I'm the Albany reporter for City and State Magazine. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Zach Reports. And we got a new noontime newsletter that comes out uh, with the latest on what's going on in the state capitol. You know, go to our website, cityandstateny.com, and you can sign up and uh, keep in touch. Thanks, Zach. We'll talk next week. And you've been listening to Zach Williams. This is Focus on Albany, Spotlight on State Government. Um, Thank you, everybody. We'll talk next week. Have a good week, everyone. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.